Would you pray with me? Lord, indeed you are the God of vengeance. And we take great comfort in that to know that you are also the God of mercy and grace. You are the God who will forgive any repentant sinner. And you are the God who will judge any who rise up against your people. So we take comfort in those truths in our day. We do pray, O Lord, that you would strike our nation doing whatever you need to do to instill the fear of God into our rulers, that they may once again bow their knee to King Jesus and honor him as Lord of heaven and earth, and thereby ensuring peace and, um, and security for us. We, we pray that, Lord. We ask that you would do that work, not that you would raise up Republican leaders or that you would strike down Democratic leaders or that you would just um, get the wicked out of office. Lord, we pray that our nation would turn back to the Lordship of Christ, that we would repent as a nation and that you would be merciful to us. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask you to be our teacher today. Would you help us, Lord, with humble hearts and with sharp minds to, to look at your word and to see it for what it is and to be encouraged by it? Would you give, um, give me strength to divide this, your word, for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So you are in Genesis chapter 23, or if you're not yet, uh, you, you should be. Um, we have a really interesting text. This is one of those um, texts of Scripture where if we weren't teaching straight through the Bible, we would not stop here. Because it's just the death of Sarah... He's buying land to bury her. And we might say, well, what, what more is there? Do we really need to spend um, time thinking through these things? I would say, yes, we need to spend time thinking through these things because uh, the Scriptures don't say that most of the Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. There's profit for us here, and, uh, and I'll, I'll, um, you will see that in a, in a few moments. This text... Um, gives us the, um, the very first, the initial purchase or ownership by the God's covenant people in this ground, in this world. Uh, we're going to read some, some texts in the New Testament that demonstrate this, but I'll just tell you up front that when God promised Abraham to be, that, that through you I will bless all nations, you will be a blessing to all nations, he was promising Abraham the world. Ultimately, through Abraham's son, Jesus Christ, who owns the world today. And so what we're going to see right here is the very first seed of ownership. Abraham is going to purchase the first square foot of ground that he has. And we know because of Christ and because of the resurrection and ascension and all of the promises about the kingdom, we know that this ownership is going to spread everywhere. There's not a single square foot of ground over which Christ does not call mine. And we get to see that today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through this again. I'll just make some observations along the way and then have uh, a couple of things at the end to, to direct our thoughts to what this text can teach us. So you're in Genesis chapter 23. We'll just read this together and, um, and I'll explain some things. So 
it says that Sarah lived 127 years. For those of you who are counting, this gave her about 35 years of life with Isaac, her son. Isn't that amazing that this um, very old barren woman gives birth? What we would think of is at the very end of her life, she gives birth and, and then she's given an extra 35 years to spend with this young man. It's amazing. She lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead. And he said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Um, There is Abraham demonstrates for us something that's called the duty of mourning. We'll talk about this in a, in a few moments, but um, sometimes Christians get so weird in our mourning. We say, well, we're all going to rise from the dead, and so uh, why, why would we cry when somebody dies? And, and there's an element of truth to that, certainly, but there's also an element of truth to weeping over those that, we, uh, that have gone before us, that have been gathered to our people. And so Abraham comes in to Sarah. And he mourns over her body and he weeps. Uh, the, the words used here are, um, are highly emotive. The, the tearing of the cloak, the putting dust and ashes on your head. He's mourning for the loss of his bride. And he rose up from before his dead. And he said to the Hittites. Now this is really interesting. Um, Roy read you a text uh, about David falling into sin with Bathsheba. And um, when he inquired after Bathsheba, they said, is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? This is very interesting, the, the, the theme of the Hittites here in Hebron and what this means in the future uh, coming redemption. Um, they're a very important people group, and they acquit themselves in this text startlingly well. Abraham rises up before uh, from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, that's where he's dwelling, he says, watch his humility, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, I want you to know something very important here. Abraham is not asking for, for just a spot to bury Sarah. He's asking for a possession, for an ownership. I want to buy in perpetuity land here. I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. I'm an unlanded man. I'm an immigrant, he says to them. And he says, so please let me buy a piece of property that I may bury my wife. Now the Hittites, it's really an amazing thing how God has so blessed Abraham that even the Canaanites acknowledge uh, his blessing. Look in verse five, how they respond to him. The Hittites answered. So Abraham says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Dispense with the foreigner and the sojourner. You're the best among us. We love you. We want want you to stay. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Don't miss this. Here's what they do. They give him what they think he's asking for. You can, you, can, you, can, you can put her anywhere in, in our land. We will let you bury her in our land. They are willing and eager to have him bury Sarah there. 
they are reluctant that he would buy property among them. You can see this, right? I was at a, um, um, a deal at the courthouse where we were talking to Senator Colcourt's uh, assistant, and she was talking about some legislation that passed because there's some, um, some guy who's really high up in the Chinese communist uh, government who bought something like 1,200 acres in San Antonio right beside the, um, the airport there. And our senators are saying, you know, it's probably not a good idea that foreign entities, foreign governments are buying up our land. And so they, they passed this law. You, you see that, right? This is our country. And if you want to become part of our country, like by all means. But we don't want foreign powers moving in and buying up. And so you see the Hittites' reluctance. Look, we understand, we understand your grief and, and please bury her, but, but we don't want to sell we don't want to sell you our land. That's the, that's the heart of it. So Abraham, now watch this. This is amazing. Abraham rose up. They're at the city gate. So, so presumably they're sitting down and they're talking through these things. Abraham rose up and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. He's prostrating himself. So picture Abraham before the Canaanites on his knees. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of, of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. He's saying, I want to buy land and this is the land that I would like to buy. And I'll tell you why I think he's aiming at this land in a few moments. But um, it's, it's worth noting you remember when we studied the book of Esther and I told you that Mordecai, um, who I think was a real stinker, even though God was gracious and used him to bless uh, and rescue his people. But Mordecai sort of set this um, this battle, as it were, off when he would not bow before his his rightful political authority. Somebody who was over him in the in the kingdom. Um, uh, Haman, the, the um, Agagite, Mordecai would not bow and, and a lot of times Christians look at that and say, good for Mordecai. He's not going to bow. He's not going to worship anybody. He's not going to submit himself. Well, um, he was in the wrong because it was the custom of the day. It would be like going to uh, a place in the east where it's custom when you walk in, you nod your head and say, you know, hello, nice to meet you. And we say, well, I don't bow my head. Like, I'm not doing that. It would be the, the equivalent of not shaking somebody's hand or something like that. Abraham has none of those scruples. He, he, he humbles himself before the people of the land as a believer, if ever there was one. And he says, please intercede for me, entreat Ephraim, the son of Zohar, and I'll give him the full price of the land. Now, in verse, in verse 10, this is really fascinating. Abraham really knows well the customs of the day. In verse 10, Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites. And Abraham knew that. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Go bury your dead. We all say, man, awesome. That's amazing. He's just going to gift it over. Well, not exactly. This is oriental custom that uh, a, lot of, a lot of people will say is still in play today. I read a story of, um, of a guy who was on an archaeological dig in this part of the world. And one of their guides had this beautiful horse, and he said uh, he approached him about it and said, "Hey, I love that horse. Could I, could I buy him from you?" 
And the guy was like, no, I, I, I'll, give, I'll give him to you. He's, he's yours. And the guy was like, really? Like, that's amazing. And he was about to take him up on it. And his buddy who knew the culture said, don't, don't, don't take it as a gift. He, he's, he's not actually giving it. He's just, he's inviting you to negotiate. And so, um, so the guy said, well, I, I, I really would love to pay, to pay you for it. I don't want to take it as a gift. And then the guy responded, listen, what's $15,000 between friends? That's how, that's, how they, that's how they negotiate a price. It's like to, everybody gets to save face. We're, we're getting friends here. When I, was in, uh, when I was in Israel, I ran out of um, – you remember SD cards and a, and a digital camera? Like I, I was taking pictures of everything. We ran out of, uh, out of memory. And so I go into this, uh, this Muslim shop and I said, hey, how much for this SD card? And he wanted like $70 for it or something just ridiculous, like a whole, a whole lot. And I was like, oh, okay. And being a good American that can't afford that, I just turned to leave. Like, I, I'm not going to negotiate. <laughs> this is the price you told me. So I turned to leave, and he catches me in the door, and he goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And he slides his arm under my hand, and he interlocks his fingers like this. Uh, 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 my hand on top, his hand on bottom, and he pats me with his other hand and drags me back. Here. No, 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 we'll, we'll talk about this. And he brings me back in, serves me tea, and I think I bought it for like 15 bucks. But, but it's, it's the idea of... Uh, a price tag is impersonal. How much for this car? Well, the price, look, if you want it, great. If not, great. They want to build a relationship. And these, this is a subtle but a friendly dance here. I give you the land. Abraham says, no, no, I, I want to pay for it. And the guy says, listen, what's 400 shekels between, between buddies, right? So that's a really cool uh, haggling of, a, uh, of an enjoyable custom. And, and you can see that because that makes sense of verse 10 or verse 16 when it says Abraham listened to Ephron. What do you mean he listened to him? He, he just said it's no big deal. Well, he's, he's, he knows the custom. He listens to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So this is, uh, this is according to whatever the scale of cost was to the day. That's the silver. There is biblical evidence that Abraham got rung on this deal, that it was, uh, that it was an exorbitant amount to, to pay for this land. But that's, uh, we're not 100% sure of that. But he doesn't, it's interesting that he doesn't say, oh, 400, I'll give you 350. He just gives it over. In verse 16, so the field in Ephron, of Ephron in Mach- Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession. Uh, we would think in terms of as an inheritance, as something that is his forever. That's the, that's the thrust of the text is Abraham acquiring uh, the land that God has promised him already to give him. This is the land where, where um God told Abraham, I want you to look north, south, east, and west as far as you can see. I'm giving you this land. It's yours. So Abraham, in a real sense, is paying for what he knows is already his. And it's significant that he's not paying for land that he can live on. He's paying for land that he can plant his dead in. It's an amazing picture of his assumption of the resurrection that he doesn't want her buried in some other place. And all the patriarchs shared this. They wanted to be buried in the land that God had given them. 
So it was given to him as a possession. In verse 18, uh, to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who were in the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burial place by the Hittites. Okay, so a few things that, uh, that we can learn from this text. The first is that Abraham wanted land in Canaan. It seems like a glaringly obvious fact, right? He wants land in Canaan. He's not content to just say, well, I'll just bury my wife anywhere or I'll cremate her uh, and throw her to the four winds. Please don't hear a judgment in that if, you, if, you, if that's happened or, or um, that's... Uh, it's, it's not in accordance with Christian tradition in terms of uh, our, our ancestors from very early on going back to these days in hopes of the resurrection. We plant bodies in the ground like seeds, knowing that one day they're going to come up from the dead. If you, if you have cremated a loved one, please don't hear condemnation in that. God is able to reconstitute the dust. Amen? It's, it's not a, there's not a condemnation. But if you're wondering what to do in the future, um, I, would, I would impress upon you to consider consider bearing. It's a glaringly obvious fact of this text that Abraham wants land, physical land in the place that God said, I'm giving you this land. Why would that be the case? You hear, you hear it a lot. People will say about this world, this world ain't my home. I'm just passing through. And you know what? That's a lie. That is a, that is a lie, as one of my favorite teachers says, um, that is a lie from hell and it smells like smoke. It's true. It's true. Um, both, think about eschatology for a moment. There are three main eschatological positions. There's premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Premillennials and postmillennials agree on what I'm telling you right now, that this world is your home and you're not just passing through. We would say it this way. Heaven is not your home. You're just passing through. To die, your, when you die, your body goes in the ground. Your soul goes to be with the Lord awaiting the day of resurrection. We say it every Sunday. We believe in the resurrection of the soul, right? No, the resurrection of the body. Your body, my body, the body of all of our loved ones that have been planted. Bodies will rise, souls will reunite, and we will rule and reign on this earth with Christ. That's the hope of the resurrection, the redemption of this physical world. And here's what's cool. Premillennials and postmillennials will differ over how and when that comes about, but nobody differs over the what, except for the weirdo amillennials that just say all of those texts that talk about um, the glory and the knowledge of God covering the earth like water covers the sea. That's just a spiritual. That's talking about the spiritual heavenly kingdom. And it doesn't really it doesn't really count. And, And so they believe that there's no physical earthly kingdom coming to this world. Pre-mills, post-mills all believe that the authority of King Jesus is coming to this very ground. And so I want you to see this and connect a dot here of like Abraham is not content to say someday, someday it will be mine. And he knows that. He's basing his life on that fact. He's content to wait, but he's also going to endeavor to start that, to get, to get after um, 
that. So the Christian is not just a passer through. This ground remade in Christ is our destiny. You are destined to rule and reign upon the earth. Two texts if you care to write them down. Romans 4.13. Um, I'm going to read this to you because you need it in your soul. Because Some of you don't believe me yet. Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring. Okay? Promises to Abraham. And who is the offspring of Abraham to whom all the promises were made? Christ. And who gets all of those promises by union with Christ? You and me. So this is us. This is promises made to us. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, really quick, that he would be heir of the world. It would be easy for us to go, well, no, just heir of the promised land. But there's a way that the, that the Greek New Testament talks about the promised land. And there's another word that they use to talk about the everything. And this is that he would be heir of the cosmos. All of it God promised to Abraham. So when Abraham buys this parcel of land, listen to me, like the birth of Isaac, right? It's just like the birth of Isaac. God says, look at the stars. If you can count them, you'll be able to count your descendants. And Abraham saw virtually none of his descendants. He saw one baby named Isaac. And I think he met um, Jacob and Esau as well. He might have even met the 12 sons. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll discover it when we get there. But the point is, he had a handful of people. He receives Isaac. And he's looking at this one baby. And he says, God says, I'm going to outnumber the stars and the dirt. And it's all starting with this one child. He receives this land the same way. Everything is coming to me. And it starts with this piece of land. It's amazing. This is the first square foot of land that will grow into ownership of every square inch of land all through Christ. It's like a seed. It's like leaven. It's like the kingdom of Christ. It comes, starts small. It's spreading everywhere. And Abraham knew that. Secondly, Abraham's grief does not eclipse his duty. Okay? Abraham's grief does not eclipse his duty. He weeps. He goes in like any man should, and he weeps over the loss of his wife. But he doesn't cash it in. Uh, Abraham is a hundred and change. He's old, right? Would be very understandable, very easy for us to understand this man saying that I've known this woman all through my life. We've been through the ringer together. We've been through the thick, we've been through the thin, and now she's gone. And so uh, you could almost, uh, yeah, you would understand if Abraham said, all right, Lord, here's the white flag. I'm done. I've got plenty of money. I'm not doing anything else. I'm just, uh, I'm going to give up on my responsibilities, on the responsibility to live. But listen, he weeps, but he also works. Raise your hand if you think about uh, if, if you think about the loss of a spouse and you think in that season, you know what I really want to do is I want to haggle over land. Anybody? Let's go, let's go buy some real estate today of all days. But listen, Abraham, it's his duty. It's his responsibility to his wife and to his family. And so he does the hard work of embracing not only the grief, but also the duty that he still has. 
Um, it's really interesting. This is the last sort of 25 years of Abraham's life uh, coming from uh, the last thing we read was his offering up of Isaac. There's been 25 years of sort of the, what, what they call the calm harbor of life. We've done our heavy sailing. We're in the, we're in the bay. We're at anchor. It's peaceful. It's easy. And so we, we've, we've gapped about 25 years between the last thing that we saw. And here his wife dies and, and Abraham still rises to the occasion to do some very heavy lifting. He's, also, he's going to buy land so that he can bury Sarah. And sort of as the last, like, the last big thing I'm going to give myself to, and we'll look at it next week, is the acquiring of a bride for his son from the right type of people. And so he's not going to check out on life just because he lost somebody that he cares about deeply. So I, will, uh, I wanted to say, just thinking about this, um, and maybe this will help you, maybe it won't. Uh, you, you take it or leave it. But I did want to say a word to the wise. If you don't believe in resurrection, you're going to fall prey to the economy of the bereaved. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you're going to fall prey to the economy of the bereaved. Um, when our first son passed away, went to be with his people, um, I can remember sitting in the funeral home and um, there's coffins everywhere and there's nothing so soul-shattering and depressing as the coffin of a child. It just doesn't get worse than that. These tiny little things. Death boxes. And, you know, we're like reeling from this loss and this guy is saying, hey, you know, you can do this like normal pine box over here or you can do this French oak hand-carved in the Baroque style with silk inlays and pillows and his nameplate and all, you know, and you can just see the like, the screws being, because it's like, well, we, do you love your son or do you not? Like, do you want to honor him or do you not? Um, We believe in the resurrection, okay? And so honoring someone in burial is important, but it's not, you don't need to feel like if you don't, if you don't get ripped off, you didn't love. This is not the moment we want to be thinking life on the cheap. But what should characterize the funeral of believers? Um, S. Lewis Johnson was talking about this, and it was so helpful. He said, when you read the scriptures and you just kind of take in all of the different funerals, he said, there's three big ideas that you want to have at a funeral. Simplicity and dignity and respect. Okay? That's what you're after. We're not going to try and do some elaborate thing. We're not going to you know, sink and, and have to sell property so that we can honor. Um, if, if, you, if you do that or have the means to do that and you want to build a mausoleum with like the big angels made of marble, good on you. But you don't have to do that, right? Um, I remember one, one uh, um, we were going to Pittman one time and the baby saw that uh, there's one plot. And I don't know who that is. This is not a judgment. I'm just describing like there's this huge angel, right? This giant thing. I remember the kids said, man, they must have really loved their, their people, you know? And you can see, I mean, I, I, I see that. And then it's like, oh, yeah, the rest of us who just bought a tombstone didn't really care. Well, it's not that way. Um, so don't, don't fall prey to the economy of the bereaved. Um, thirdly, Abraham buried Sarah in faith that she would rise and inherit the land that God had promised. This is really cool. This is really cool. Why Machpelah? Why the field of Ephraim? Like, Abraham knows it. It's not like he's like, 
they say, hey, you know, where, where do you want to go? And he says, give me a map. Let's look at plots and all. He knows exactly the land he wants and the person who owns it. Well, why? I believe it's because this is the place in all of the world where Sarah enjoyed her greatest happinesses. This is the very place in Genesis, I believe it's Genesis 18, where Abraham was sitting in the heat of the day in the door of his tent flap. And he looks up and three men were coming his way. There were two angels and Yahweh himself. And those guys came. He feasted them. And Sarah was listening at the tent flap right here in Machpelah. And Kiriath Arba. And so the same names in Hebron. It's the same names for the same place. Different names for the same place. And she overheard Yahweh himself saying, think about this, ladies. You've been barren all your life. And in this culture, it was a shame and a reproach. Everybody who saw a barren woman thought she did something to deserve that. God is angry. That's, that's the idea. And you wore that your entire life. She's listening at the tent door and she hears Yahweh say, where is Sarah? It's the first time she's named in the covenant promises. Where is she? She's in the tent. I'm coming back in a year's time. She's going to be nursing a baby that she bore. And she laughed, probably in doubt, but it's one of those that's too good to be true type of a doubt. Same thing that Abraham did when he heard that, that for the first time that Sarah was going to have a baby. He laughed as well. This is where Isaac was born. This is where most of the great promises that came to this covenant family came right here in the cave of Machpelah. And so it's not insignificant that Abraham buries Sarah in the place of her greatest happiness. Okay? By the way, it's entirely natural for your soul to be tied to a place. Did you know that? Some of you, uh, like me, when you dream, you dream a lot of times in a particular place. Is that weird to any of you guys? Or do you guys know what I'm talking about? When I was growing up, my parents were divorced. And so there was one home available to me where I could go. And a man and a woman were married. They were on the same team. And the bills were paid. And so there was no high stress. It was a, it was a place of peace and rest. There were a couple houses I could go to. My grandparents in bo- on both sides were married. They were both, uh, you know, bills were paid, all of that. But there was one and I, and I loved them. They loved me. But they played favorites left and right. And, just, and, and I wasn't one of their favorites. And so, you know, I was, I was there and it was great. But there was one set of my grandparents who loved all of us the same way. I might have been a slight favorite. And so that may have been why I loved their house. But there was something about going to that home and to that land and that creek, Bettis Creek. It was terrifying and adventurous and amazing. And so uh, I will consistently find myself dreaming about walking those woods. It's bizarre. Well, I don't think that's accidental that, that we get tied to a very physical, real place. It's because we're physical, real beings. We are a soul. We have a body. And we're meant to live in the world that God has made. And so Abraham, as he's going to bury his wife, he buries her in the place of her greatest happiness. And lastly... Abraham demonstrates that spirituality is not in any way against the natural order of our instincts. We believe in the resurrection of the body. And, therefore, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. That does not mean that we don't grieve. Right? Um, there are some Christians, you'll, you'll bump into them and you'll say, Man, so-and-so lost their, lost their spouse or lost a child. 
And their first response will say, well, all things happen for a reason. Why are we sad? All things happen for a reason. Now, is that true? Of course it's true. There's not a single thing that happens in this world that didn't pass through the grid of our heavenly loving Father that he, that he is, is allowing or causing to say, I'm bringing this into your life for your good. That is absolutely true. And it does not override the fact that we cry tears so hard that our backs get thrown out. Period. We grieve, but we don't lose hope. Okay? Um, S. Lewis Johnson again. He asked, what is sorrow? Sorrow is love that has been bereaved. Don't forget. Think about this with me. Uh, Y'all probably know the, um, in case you ever make it to Jeopardy and you need to answer a Bible question. um, What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Do you know? What? Yeah, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. Where did Jesus cry, Christian? At a funeral. At a funeral. His, a man that he loved named Lazarus had died. And Jesus intentionally let him die so that he could raise him from the dead and told his disciples we're going there to raise him from the dead. And yet when he's at the funeral, what does he do? He sees all of the weeping. All of the sadness, he sees death, and he weeps. Why? Because he is the creator. And when he made man in his image, he didn't create him to die. We chose to rebel. We chose to sin. And therefore, sin and death have come into the world. And so death is as unnatural today as it, is, as it was back in the beginning. This is one of the great proofs of the, create, the creation of man in God's image. If we were just evolution, the product of random time chance acting on matter, evolving, death would not hurt anybody at all. It's everybody dies. It's the most common fact of life, and so we would just deal with it. But it still crushes us. Why? Because Jesus didn't create us to die. He wept at a funeral that he was about to turn into a party. And so we, every time we bury a loved one, we need to know someday this day is going to turn into a party. And so we have eyes on a hope, but we don't renounce the right to weep. Samuel Johnson said this, Christianity teaches us to die well, but not eagerly. Isn't that good? It teaches us to die well, but not eagerly. Life is a gift and we're to live it and we're to love deeply and we're to weep deeply when we lose people that we love, but we're not to weep without hope. All right. This story teaches us to take life's bereavements by faith, which means seeing each and every one of life's bereavements as just another plot point that God will resolve in the great day of resurrection. Oh, how we fret and regret lest our memories be forgotten. But Abraham buried Sarah without a single Instagram photo to revisit and remember her smile her kindness, or her disagreeable seasons. But we try and capture every memory as though there's something, uh, as though if there is a visible memory, we can preserve the thing itself. It's like tasting great wine but refusing to swallow. It doesn't work that way. But listen, believer, you can be free from worry in this regard. Everything will come back to us in the resurrection. Our bodies will rise. Our loved ones' bodies will rise and we will all reign on the earth with Christ forever. 
And I'm going to repeat that to you because you need to hear it. Our bodies will rise. Our loved ones' bodies will rise. And we will all reign on this earth with Christ forever. Every single time a person dies, we have an opportunity to be reminded that this is not the end of the story. This is another casualty in the grand epic of time. An epic which will bring to relief the glory and wisdom and honor of our God and of His Christ. There will not be a single unredeemable hardship, a single unreversed death, a single unresolved question. Christ will return and He will set all the universe to right. And so we come to this table much the same. As as Abraham purchased the land, he would eventually be given by God. This table is a seed of the kingdom of grace. And that by God's sovereign decree is growing into a forest of grace that will cover the earth like water covers the sea. Right here at this covenant sign, we hold in our hands the very universe itself like Abraham held the nations when he held Isaac. This is so because at this table, we have all of Christ, who is Lord of the universe. So come. All things are yours and you are Christ's. Come, triumphant possessors of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. Come, welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us as we come to this table? Would you impart to us those things which Christ lived and died that that would be ours? And would you help us, much like Abraham bought that parcel of land knowing that the whole world was his? We come to this table knowing that all things are ours in Christ. And so help us to eat and drink in faith and enjoy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.